Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, June 2nd, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today for the first time, a name known to listeners of this podcast as the chairman of the Bonson Group. Uh, whose ads have graced our, our 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 airwaves here for for about a year. Uh, my my good friend, commentary contributor, National Review contributor, National Review podcaster with his podcast, weekly podcast, Capital Record, uh, David Bonson. Hi, David. Welcome oh, hello, to the John. podcast. Great to be with you. Uh, I I do want to say that David is uh, one of. Uh, our longest live uh, respondents to the podcast in email uh, always has something interesting to say, uh, listening uh, day in and day out. And David, as people will remember, was somebody I turned to every morning as as the pandemic was growing because his uh, daily newsletter, uh, the dctoday.com, would, would do these really great deep dives into the COVID numbers day after day after day about where they were going, where the surges were, what we should make of a lot of the, uh, of what we were seeing. And I was struck last night as I was going through various, uh, there are three or four different daily trackers of COVID news. Uh, the most obvious or the best known one is that, is that chart that appears on the front, uh, on, the, on the homepage of the New York Times that shows case numbers and death numbers and the and a percentage of the two week change. Uh, so that there's that there Johns Hopkins has a COVID tracker and then there's one called Worldometers, which tries to get this stuff together. And yesterday it was really kind of there was a moment when I looked at the Johns Hopkins COVID tracker and I said. The pandemic is really over because it was, it wasn't a weekend. It was the day after a weekend. It wasn't a Sunday. It wasn't a Saturday. It wasn't Memorial Day, and the COVID tracker on of Johns Hopkins said that in America yesterday, June first, there were fifty six hundred cases, new cases of COVID, and one hundred and thirty eight deaths. And I thought, okay, well. As we keep saying, Anthony Fauci at some point said, if we go under 10,000 cases, the pandemic is over. If we're at 138 deaths, the pandemic is really over. And now I'm trying to find these other, then I went to Worldometer and the numbers were a little higher. Um, they were, where is this? I think around 12,000 uh, 12,000 cases. cases and 200 and something deaths. So that was pretty startling, I thought. Uh, it's 5,400, uh, yeah, 13,000 cases, 280 deaths. But the New York Times had it 22,000 new cases and about 500 deaths. So David, as a, as a person who makes his living as a numbers cruncher, what do you make of these disparities Number one, what do they tell us about what we know about COVID in general as we try to follow this? Uh, number two, what they all do agree on is the, the trajectory downward is startling and that if, even if they don't quite agree, even the New York Times larger number one 
is heading inexorably down in a week or two or three to that number under which, according to Anthony Fauci, we are no longer in the pandemic. I think, John, a lot of this has been a frustration all the way through the pandemic, which is that different states have different methodologies for how they're reporting, and then different aggregators of the data, which is what you're referring to, have different ways of aggregating it, different methodologies for aggregating from different sources of data. And so the best tool that I used throughout was pooling these different um, sources to, and using running averages just to get the general trends. And so to that point, there's no dispute. So like real, real clear pandemics is what you're, is what you're saying. It's like more, more, more or less. Okay. The, prob the problem is that um, it's much less now, although that number you cited there at the end with the larger death number is another example. But last summer, I was focusing on what I called the fact states, which was Florida, Arizona, California, Texas. The amount of backlog deaths that were being reported in Massachusetts, New Jersey, we're still doing it heavily in Q1 of this year. There were days that you were getting over 50% of the deaths reported from over 90 days prior. Um, you would have a whole nursing home that apparently had left data uh, in a file for 120 days or something. It has not been a confidence-inducing period of time for the way data is apparently aggregated by uh, central authorities in the country. But, but the trend is what matters. And, and I would point to a different stat point, which was zero COVID deaths in the UK over the weekend and zero deaths in all of New York City yesterday with a positivity rate in New York State at 0.57%, which I am just gonna go out on a limb and say in my world is the same as 0%. So you basically in the ground zero of COVID in the country have killed COVID, it's gone. And, and so the statistics of this, which one is it 20 deaths or 50 deaths and so forth, all the, the takeaway is that all of it is getting better and is almost entirely better. And by any practical, if not technical definition of herd immunity, it has come and been here for a couple of weeks. But I still want to push back on the idea that this is new. If one defines the urgency of the pandemic the way it was always defined, which is the fear of overrunning the hospitals and a massive amount of excess mortalities, because we have been so far removed from that for so long that that remains to me the most egregious policy error. Right now we're debating if we're at zero or 0 0.1, but we were effectively months ago at a place in which far more normalization could have been achieved. I mean, let's, let, let's discuss that a little bit because, because the, yeah, that great fear from the outset, and I'm talking about April of 2020, that great fear was the dog that didn't bark of the pandemic. I mean, even in New York, the epicenter of, you know, still, you know, the mortality and rate in New York, uh, you know, uh, outdistanced everything last spring and all of that. And the emergency rooms were not overrun. We were living here. They were setting up tents in Central Park. They were setting up the Javits Center uh, which is now a mass vaccination site as a as a hospital overrun. They brought a ship up from uh, from Norfolk, a hospital ship, to deal with this. Uh, Andrew Cuomo said we need forty thousand ventilators. Somehow ventilators were constructed and sent to New York. 
And none of it in the end turned out to be necessary even, in other words, the system held even with this mass uh, you know, explosion of cases and, and illnesses, even then, even then. So I, I'm not sure what that, that tells us because I hear now even from friends of mine in Canada, it's like, oh, we hear that in Manitoba, you know, they're running out of ICU beds. But somehow it never gets to the point where somebody says we're out of ICU beds. Do you know what I mean? It's always like we're at, we're at 80%, you know, we're at 85%. I'm sure it's terrible in Canada. I don't mean to belittle or, you know, or downgrade the, the severity of any of this. But part of the story here is that the American healthcare system held and did not break. And that story has not been told at all, as far as I can tell. John, can I just say real quick that one of the things that is most unethical about the way this stuff was reported is the very story of hospital bed capacity. And the way I figured it out, and I'm not a journalist, but I decided to play one last summer as part of my daily research for the, the writing which you mentioned. And I wanna, and I wanna tell you a, a funny story about that writing that involves you in a second. But I picked up the phone and called the um, Methodist Center Hospital. It's a network of eight hospitals in Texas and in Houston where they were reporting in the media every day that they were on the verge of having bodies pile up in the emergency rooms and that they had no beds and the ICUs were overwhelmed. And I just kept calling and calling and getting higher and higher ranked people on the phone till eventually I got a call back from the CEO of the hospital network who flat out told me, of course we're overrun as long as we say that the number of beds we have is X. But with one switch, X can be doubled because there's a whole lot of other beds that are not right now called ICU beds that can be reclassified as such. I couldn't understand here in Orange County, California, I'm sitting right now in my house in Newport Beach, there are 6,600 hospital beds and they had about um, 900 that were prepped for ICU and they were saying we were at this danger zone in ICU, but there were 4,000 empty hospital beds. And so it all comes down to the known issue of whether or not ICU beds were gonna be made out of non-ICU beds, which could be done really quite easily and is somewhat part of a hospital's business model. You don't want to run at 50% ICU capacity other than the obvious humanitarian and you know, human um, aspect of it. But I'm saying from a kind of resource utilization standpoint, it makes no sense to be at 50% ICU. So they have a kind of up and down management of that. And the press would report it knowing that it was untrue, that they didn't have the ability to surge that capacity and not just surge it with a little bit of gymnastics, surge it quite easily. Well, I guess this is an interesting question for, for everybody to consider. Um, I think Noah and I have a running, have a running dispute over one thing, which is that um, uh, he believes in sweet reason more than I do and says, people know this and then they say it anyway, or they should know it and therefore they say it. And I, I, would, I would dispute your contention, David, that, um, that the people who were reporting this were reporting it knowing that what they were reporting was false or hysterical. Um, I've worked in and around newsrooms and in journalism for four decades now. And I cannot tell you how ignorant uh, how sloppy and how generally um, uh, un, 
uh, authoritative. Uh, people are, uh, particularly when they're covering uh, disasters or scandals or things like that, that, they, that where a, a paper needs to staff up or an organization needs to staff up and throw a lot of resources at things. That means that they have two or three experts on staff who know everything about something, right? The New York Times for decades had a guy named Robert Pear who knew everything about healthcare. But when you get 20 people on healthcare and somebody says we're running out of hospital beds, what you just said, which is obvious to anybody who's ever stayed in a hospital, right? Or has ever been in a hospital, they got, they got, they got beds in hallways because they don't have enough beds in rooms. They've got, you know, they wheel in a machine to measure some extra oxygen capacity into your room if something is going wrong, which effectively turns it into an ICU room without being in the ICU wing you know it's 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 an elastic it's like a, it's an accordion like system where th there is no it's not like a hotel like there is no 100% you know occupancy it doesn't work that way um people don't know that because they don't know nothing they know you know as as twitter has revealed over many years it's amazing how little people know noah so that's why i want to ask you here do you agree with David? I mean, it, David's saying that he thinks that, you know, there was a lot of knowing false reporting in order to sort of gin up hysteria or whatever. Do you think that's the case? Or do you think that we really should attribute a lot of this to the fact that amateurs were covering matters that they really didn't understand? I mean, we should allow for ignorance as a more logical explanation for human behavior than malice, surely. Nevertheless, um, as you alluded to, um, we have the ad the advent of Twitter has allowed us to peek into the, the the thought process that goes into this sort of reporting, and you have reporters quite freely admitting they're irrational. They say that it's irrational, but nevertheless, compelling fear about things like unmasking and uh, and the relaxing of social distancing guidelines, because. Yeah, sure, maybe it's justified by the statistics, but it makes you feel weird. And that's the sort of thing that leads me to the conclusion that, yes, David's absolutely correct that there was an effort to manipulate public opinion. And the effort to manip manipulate public opinion was led by public health officials, admittedly, on, on issues like the uh, necessity of masking and the threshold at which we achieve herd immunity and whether or not the first, the first dose of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines was sufficient to produce enough immunity that we could put off the second dose. That sort of thing was admittedly done in the effort to achieve a political outcome. It was not based on um, data as we understand it or a, a dispassionate reading of public health guidelines that would uh, you know, bring us to an outcome that was desirable. It was a noble lie, admittedly noble lies. And if reporters were taking their cues from the experts, particularly, this is something that Nicholas Ward brought up, if reporters were taking their cues from these um, experts in their fields who they don't expect them to manipulate them. They don't expect to be lied to by their sources in the world of science and medicine, quite unlike, for example, in politics. Um, then they, their guards would have been down, they've been taking their cues and they would have been producing these, um, what the public health bureaucracy wanted them to say. So it's a perfectly understandable um, outcome, even if it's not necessarily malicious, it is rooted in a noble objective, but the means by which it was achieved were by all accounts nefarious. Do you think, uh, I, hey, let me just ask you this. Yeah. 
Do you think that if the pandemic had taken place in 2019 or 20, in other words, if, if it hadn't taken place in an election year, that the coverage would have had a different tinge? Here's what I mean. I'm, I'm just going to quote you from MSNBC's Ari Melber, um, who uh, defended the media yesterday uh, for uh, dismissing the COVID uh, lab leak theory. Quote, if the chief and loudest advocate for something is a race baiting liar who lies all the time, you can understand why people don't want to get near that. Now, granted, people thought that Trump was a race baiting liar long before the election year. But the fact that um, we were being simultaneously dealing with a pandemic and an effort to cast uh, the presidency itself as a villain uh, in, in the pandemic, um, that that led to a greater degree of this kind of, of these kind of distortions? Um, only marginally, because, um, you know, as you allude to, Trump was a villain before he was elected, you know. Uh, he, was, he, was, he was a villain since, since the, the 2016 uh, campaign season and never ceased being one uh, to the same people. I mean, the weird, the weird thing about Ari Melber's statement, I think, is that I don't recall Trump being the foremost proponent of the lab leak theory, actually. Um, I, I, I recall him um, sort of, you know, um, uh, dumping on China in, in broad, vague terms um, throughout, interspersed with also praising China's uh, uh, job. Um, so I don't, I don't know that 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 um, you know holds. Uh, I, I think it's a, I think it's a pretty uh, porous defense there. Um, re regarding the the question of malice or ignorance on the hospital data and associated issues, I very much go for malice here because I will never forget the way at this very same time when cases were peaking in New York, um, the sort of on the 15 minutes, uh, every 15 minutes checking in at hospitals with live cameras to wait to await the morgue trucks, you know, um, uh, salivating to be able to, to, to get the, 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 the worst dystopian take on things. And I would also say it wasn't always the noble lie. It was sometimes quite ignoble because a lot of this, the, the point of it was to prove to people how ill-prepared uh, America is generally, the Trump administration specifically, how they've been failed. Um, I think it was a, there was a lot of um, negative propaganda involved in all of it. You know, Christine, this is an important point because I just looked up this number. There was, in fact, one hospital in, in New York City that had a problem with an overflow there was one, the Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, where we famously, there were famously refrigerated trucks outside that were being used. There are 214 hospitals, working hospitals in New York City, 214. There was one hospital where, and it's a small hospital and it's not a very good hospital and all that. Uh, one out of 214 is not the overrun of an entire system, and I get back to this point, which is there's a longer narrative here about the American healthcare system. It's a complicated long-term narrative. The American healthcare system triumphed over COVID uh, in it, however you want to slice it. First of all, we had enough capacity. We had enough treatment. Uh, 
We learned quickly that the initial treatments that were being used, which largely involved ventilators, was a, were, was a mistake, and it was basically largely abandoned. People were put on ventilators too soon, and it actually killed them. Um, no one, that was an honest mistake. I mean, literally an honest mistake, because this is how you treat the kind of lung crises that people were, were undergoing. Um, and then, of course, you have, if you want to put the, if you want to put drug uh, you know, drug development, drug treat, drug drug testing, and all of that uh, into the system. Of course, we have the greatest triumph, really, of our time, which was the development of the of the vaccines in you know in nine months, the development of the deployment of the vaccines in nine months' time. And nobody is talking about this. Nobody is looking at this and saying. Oh my God! Yeah, you know where this wasn't the case. Now, granted, England has a national healthcare system, so and the UK has triumphed over COVID, so this is not you know like a dispositive case. But no one's saying, you know, what we did pretty well. We did pretty well. We have the greatest drug company system in uh, you know a series of drug companies in in the world. We have kept them going because we do not have nationalized pricing and we do not have you know we do not limit their capacity to do research and development and all that. And look where we are. Uh, look what happened here. Uh, millions more could have died and they didn't, but no one is saying that. Well, that I think it speaks to a larger point. And I, and I agree with David and Abe's uh, more cynical, but I think more accurate take on, on the media's role here because a sign of a healthy uh, democracy is one that can have open civic debates about important and complicated issues. And uh, unfortunately, in this case, the I think the narrative that the mainstream media in particular promoted uh, suited political leanings that we know the majority of the mainstream media shares, and also relied quite heavily on Americans' broad statistical ignorance, right? Our inability to understand what numbers mean. And I'm sure David can speak to this very well. Uh, we would see frightening statistics about hospital beds, but with no context. The role of the media in, in telling these stories is to provide some context, some neutral context. All of those stories should have said normal ICU capacity is kept at 75 to 80% for economic reasons. Most people would understand what that meant. Then they could absorb the statistical information they were getting and the fear mongering that was, that was the intention of a lot of these pieces would have been abated. I think we see this as well in the weird retconning that mainstream media outlets like the Washington Post are doing with regard to the origins of the COVID virus. They're going back and changing headlines that criticized people like Senator Tom Cotton who spoke out early about the possibility of, of a lab leak. So that is very concerning because when we have a situation where the media claims to be doing a mea culpa of itself for having missed some important part of a very large global story, but their mea culpa is just to tweak a headline or two and say, ah, my bad. No, it's very bad because Americans' mistrust in media is already at an all-time high. And if we can't look to sort of mainstream outlets to tell us what these numbers mean, then we're going to be in trouble down the line when another crisis hits. Um, so, uh, guys, let me just quickly talk to you about the X chair. You've heard me talk about it. That's that luxury supercar of, of, uh, of office chairs. You get your, uh, you got your, uh, patented, uh, X HMT technology that brings heat and massage therapy to your core, uh, keeps you, keeps you going, keeps you, keeps you feeling great as you sit and, uh, the dynamic variable lumbar support that means you get that important lumbar support for your lower back. You've heard me talk about it. I got it at home. It changed my life. I no longer sit at a horrible desk chair that 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 gives me a pain. 
um, you really, really got to take your take your cues from this chair and take a take a good feel and 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 see what you can see what you can find with it because it it really will change your life. It makes working a joy, uh, and it is the ultimate therapeutic massager. Uh, you won't believe the X chair difference until you feel the X chair difference. It's now on sale for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. So uh, we've been talking a lot, and uh, the country has been talking a lot about the threat of, of inflation uh, from various uh, sources. We have a, a, the latest fear comes from this cyber attack on uh, uh, slaughterhouses and meat processing plants that is now threatening to vastly increase the price of, of, of beef. Um, and uh, there's a piece in the Washington Post about what they call shrinkflation, which is the act of uh, new forms of packaging uh, of, of foods and goods um, where uh, the price remains constant, but the amount of good in any given package is reduced by 10 or 15%, thus uh, making it ounce by ounce more expensive, even though the outlay at the, you know, at the supermarket or wherever you're buying it remains constant. You just will run out of things more and have to buy more of them. And that's basically a different structure for inflation. So, uh, you know, we did a whole show last week about the threat uh, posed by the by the Biden, the $6 trillion uh, Biden budget fantasy. Uh, but David Bonson, uh, a man with, uh, as we as we've said many times, uh, nearly $3 billion under management uh, for your management firm. So uh, your macroeconomic interest in inflation and uh, what it will mean for your clients is not an academic question, nor is it simply the kind of question of uh, the way in which inflation functions as a regressive tax on, on consumers. Uh, so the poorer you are, the more inflation bites at you. Uh, you're we're talking here about a global question of where you know, where equities are going to be, where bonds are going to be, all of that. And you have a kind of counterintuitive take on the threat of inflation. We'd love to hear you, you know, expand on it. It's interesting that it is counterintuitive. And, and I agree with you that it is. It's certainly a contrary view in the current moment right now. But I don't know why it's counterintuitive when every bit of overwhelming evidence of the last 40 years indicates that over indebtedness from sovereign developed governments is deflationary. So if we had not lived through the post-financial crisis period in America, where every conservative was predicting a massive devaluation of the dollar and hyperinflation because of quantitative easing, only to have that blow up in their face, and more importantly, hadn't lived through Japan, through 40 years of not 120% debt to GDP, but 250% debt to GDP, where they couldn't create inflation if their life depended on it, which to the Bank of Japan, it more or less has. So 
I do believe that it's counterintuitive, but I don't think it's counterintuitive because of the weight of history. I think that it, that when you talk about prices going up, so you bring up this, this god-awful um, cyber attack on the meat plants, and that can result in short-term disruptions to prices. That is a price increase. That is bad. That needs to be dealt with for a whole lot of reasons, not the least of which I suspect ransomware cyber attacks are about to become the geopolitical national security story of our lifetime. However, it is not inflation in a monetary sense. If you believe inflation is too much money chasing too few goods and services, as I do, the fact of the matter is that everybody involved in this story wants to create inflation. Inflation is a tax on the poor and they don't care and they would inflate away their debt and excessive spending in a minute if they could. The issue is not whether or not they want inflation. The, and by them, I mean politicians, legislators, and particularly central bankers. The issue is whether or not they're able to create it when you get the absolute collapse in velocity of money in loan demand that excessive government indebtedness creates because of pulling future growth into the present. That's the economic story of our time. And as a political conservative, I think Republicans are going to have this thing blow up in their face when you get print after print showing non-inflationary conditions a year from now after every single Fox soundbite predicting hyperinflation. But, and, I, and then I'll be quiet and let everyone else, the <laughs> other thing I'll say, John, is this thing is not tailor-made for a discussion like this, like one that people like all of us can have here together. It, it's not good for sound bites because there is a negative problem that needs to be dealt with in price inflation of housing, but it's a government policy problem, zoning, environmental restrictions, so forth and so on, not a monetary inflation issue. And I think we're, we're getting this backwards and I think it's gonna happen at great political risk. So does this, one of the things that was puzzling or initially puzzling to those of us who were not economists, uh, but know something about, you know, the, the history of inflation, politically, the history of inflation over the, particularly in the 20th century, was the fact that the Biden budget proposal featured this rather astonishing uh, projection of very low, relatively low growth over the course of the next decade, despite all this spending that they wanted to do. And of course, we, you know, we have been told um, that uh, government spending uh, not only has an inflationary effect, but also at least it's supposed to at least be a kind of sugar high that 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 suddenly money floods into the market from the government um, in a kind of willy nilly fashion, just overwhelms things, and that there should at least be real growth, even if it's not organic, if it's sort of created simply by by the kind of just flow of dollars, and yet. Um, uh, Noah wrote about this yesterday, uh, Paul Krugman saying, yeah, you know, they're under-promising because they want to over-deliver. It's totally fine. Yeah, so they say there's going to be basically 2% growth for the next decade, just like there was pretty much in the previous decade. Is that a concession to the reality that you yourself are laying out here, that the concession to reality is that they know full well that 
rather than what we have been taught, which is, you know, Weimar Germany runs the printing presses and people are papering their walls with Deutschmarks in 1926, because it's a trillion Deutschmarks to the dollar, whatever the hell it was. Um, and, and here we are now that in fact, th this is a deflationary and not inflationary spiral. Is that, do the Biden economists know that? Is this a concession to that or? Well, or, let, or, let's start with the Krugman point. Have you ever in your life met a politician who was in the business of under-promising and over-delivering? <laughs> and doing so consciously. I mean, it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. They're gonna under deliver on their growth projections in that report. And so the question is, is it a concession? And what it is, is being mugged by reality. You have 13 years of sub trend line, real economic growth. It's a global and domestic condition. And there is no way anyone with a straight face can come out and put a three handle or four handle on real economic GDP growth forward looking. The, um, the sugar high or the multiplier effect of the current spending is not even supposed to be Keynesian, which is why, by the way, they did, to their credit, use the word relief more than stimulus on round number three quite a bit because they argued it along humanitarian lines. Now, I would argue it was not humanitarian and, in fact, appears to be one of the biggest backfires of policy that I've observed, which is this, the unemployment subsidy is really, in a lot of ways, uh, so thus far, the biggest misfire of the Biden administration economically. But they're not going to get real economic growth, and the reason they're not going to get it is for all the reasons I've said, and no president is going to get it because we have spent too much of tomorrow's growth already and and that ability to have a sort of Reagan-like output explosion um, is impossible at this point. And so I think that whether they're budgeting on 2% or 2.5%, they know in their heart of hearts that they will be very lucky to get something in the high ones on a go forward basis. The high ones keeps the world turning. Um, something so below that gets us into significant Japanese disinflation. All right, so let's say that all these inflationary red flags that we're seeing now disappear in a year's time. They're here today. Consumer prices rose in April by 4%, little over 4%. Politicians are responding to these signals with the trepidation that is appropriate given the uh, instability, anxiety, and political backlash that could follow. Functionally, it's an indistinct from whether or not we're seeing red actual inflation that will persist in the next year, five years, 10 years, that will necessitate some sort of a, a, a recession in order to, to bring things back or higher taxes in order to, to pair all this, all this uh, money in the economy back. So what's the, the functional distinction between real inflation and signals of inflation that politicians respond to with perhaps a little more alacrity than is due? Well, cyclical and secular inflation feel the same in the cycle. I agree with you. And I'm arguing that we're not facing secular inflation, but there will be components of cyclical inflation. And what complicates the subject is a lot of what, when you talk about the 4% CPI, um, the base effect is a real condition and the supply chain problems are a real condition. So therefore not monetary inflation, but it feels the same to consumer. However, the very important distinction is we're talking about $3 gas 
which is a lot more than $2 gas of a year ago, except for we had $3 gas in 2019, 2018, 2016, 15, and we had $5 gas from 2010 to 2013. There is no such thing as inflation that is 40% lower than the price level of 10 years ago. Copper prices are just now back to 2014, but they're 30% higher than they were a year ago. So I think that there are components of cyclical price inflation that are damaging a consumer. My, my, my point is trying to score political points with it by dumping it on Biden is a danger for Republicans because it's highly likely to prove transitory. Okay, so the argument that was made in 2009, as you point out, that there was this trillion dollars in, in stimulus, um, that A, did not have much of an effect, and B, so conservatives said two, two things. One was, uh, we are, you know, and, and the Fed is opening the spigot, it's uh, QE2, it's printing money, and, we're, and, and the government has just passed the largest single spending bill in American history. Now it seems almost quaint to say that a trillion dollar spending bill was like beyond all belief more than anything we'd ever seen before. Because of course that opened the Overton window and now we're talking, you know, we, bent, we talk about $2 trillion bills as though they're nothing. But so there was a trillion dollar bill and QE2 and, uh, and nothing much happened not bad, not good, it was fine. And so there were these two separate arguments made. One, John Taylor made it in the pages of commentary, Taylor and Kogan said, it was incredibly badly structured because it was structured to go to states. States all have balanced budget amendments. And so the money that was sent to the states for Keynesian stimulus actually had to go to pay down budget deficits and wasn't used to dig holes in the ground. And so it was inefficient. It didn't do what, it, what was promised. That was number one. And number two was, oh my God, here comes inflation because we're crowding out public uh, private sector lending uh, with the public sector spending and QE2 is printing money and all of that. And then that didn't happen. And then the argument was, you know, maybe this, the hole that was dug by the 2008 financial crisis was so deep that you poured all this money into it and it basically didn't even fill the hole. I, I mean, you know, that it was much worse than we realized. Things were much worse than we realized. And the deflationary effect of what happened in 2008 was impossible to challenge, was impossible to fix. But you're saying that the mere act of this kind of government approach, top-down government approach to fixing the economy as a result of the, this kind of crisis, itself is deflationary. Can you explain yes. how that is? Because of course, once you say it, and then you think about Japan, right, which was the leading economy in the world, I mean, aside from ours, but I mean, it was the China of the 1980s. Remember, Japan was on the verge of eating our lunch, buy, it was buying our real estate, it was buying our movie studios, Japan, Japan, Japan. And then they hit their secular stagnation in 1990 and it's 31 years later and they ain't out of it and they're never gonna come out of it. The, so the, how is played, that? What played out in Japan is exactly what played out post America's housing bubble was that uh, how bubbles, asset bubbles that burst are always followed by deflationary impact. But to treat the deflation, 
it's a sort of um, hair of the dog component. And I think, as you know, John, I don't drink anymore, but I have heard that sometimes <laughs> when someone drinks too much the night before and drinks a little in the morning, they can feel better. I can't confirm or deny this, but I've heard it. It's a hair of the dog government policy, okay? Where they treat the problem with more of it. And yet the problem is, as every abusive drinker finds out, eventually you hit a point where it doesn't work anymore. And the reality is that you can only lower rates so much to stimulate on the monetary side. And certainly as even Keynes would say, you hit a point at which you don't get a multiplier effect on stimulative government spending. So excessive government debt takes growth into the present and then leaves you without the tools into the future. But, but on in America's economy, the households of America after our, our financial crisis had to um, delever. So that was a substantially deflationary impact as debt was reduced and assets were liquidated, but they treated it with corporate re-leveraging. That's the good news is it kind of worked. Private debt, middle markets, um, you, you had a lot of private equity, uh, you had capital formation that led to a lot of productive um, economic activity. And it was enough to kind of keep the wheels turning, but now here's the problem. Companies that were at three times debt to EBITDA are now at five times debt to EBITDA. So they can't really borrow more, but those were good borrowers. They had a productive use for the money. They could borrow at 3% and get a return on equity at 10%. You like that trade, but they're now fully levered. They're up at five times. So who's gonna create the loan demand now? And you can't get new money in the system without more borrowing. That's what I think most people don't understand. They think borrowing comes from people depositing money in a bank. There's no new money created when we deposit money. There's no new money created when the Fed puts excess reserves on bank balance sheets. Money gets created from loan demand and there's no loan demand when there's no good borrowers. That's what we're up against. And that's the deflationary spiral of excessive indebtedness. But what we hear, and again, we hear it from the media, and we just spent 20 minutes bashing the media, so we can do it again. What we hear, Biden even said yesterday about Black entrepreneurship. There's lots of Black entrepreneurs. They, you know, He said this in his speech in Tulsa, but they, they, they don't have lawyers, and they don't have bankers, and they can't borrow money. And we keep hearing that like uh, it's hard to borrow money when you're, you know, an entrepreneur in America now, because it's all being crowded out by, I don't even, I don't even know what exactly the, the logic of it is. But what you're saying is that you said there are no good borrowers. What does that mean that there are no good borrowers? At, at size, uh, like if one of us goes and buys a house, then, and we have the income to support it, then that's a good borrower. And there's plenty of appetite for home borrowing. But generally on the margin, that doesn't move the needle much because someone might be selling a million dollar house to buy a 1.2 million house. They're just slightly putting a little more debt on their balance sheet. Real significant movement of, of money supply comes from corporate reflation, corporate borrowing and levering up. But they've already levered up. Their debt ratios are already at the upper end. They have record amounts of cash on the balance sheet because they don't want to go put more debt on and they don't have enough good projects to invest in. I talk all the time about one of the most embarrassing things in the 2021 American economy 
is that Amazon is still the size that it is. But I don't mean that in a Tucker Carlson or Elizabeth Warren kind of way. I mean, this is a 1997 company. They talk about it like as cool tech and new tech and big tech. This is a 25-year-old company. It should be a dinosaur by now. <laughs> we don't have the new innovations, new products, new projects, new capital expenditures, whether it's soft R&D, hard R&D, the, there isn't enough demand to go produce. And that's why we went a decade of sub 2% real GDP growth. Okay, can I ask you a question then about um, something else that was, that's been in the news in the last- I feel like I'm hogging the mic from Christine and Abe. Fair, fair. Well, let me just No, no we want story. to. We invited you on to hog the mic. Well, that's <laughs> true. Okay, so let me ask you this. So uh, we, we've been reading about um, this um, astonishing semiconductor shortage that, uh, and if you actually think about it, um, you know, the, the, the potential consequences of a years-long semiconductor shortage, given the role of semiconductors now in like almost every single consumer product that you can possibly buy that isn't a stuffed animal that, that doesn't talk, because uh, stuffed animals that talk now have a semiconductor in them, um, you know, uh, is really astonishing. So you would think when you hear about this, hey, there's semiconductor shortage. Intel is a $200 billion company or something like that. Build five more semiconductor factories. Why is this a problem? Yeah. Where, where does something like that, you know, it's sort of like the discussion that we were having about the vaccines and, and, and the, the whole question of the, uh, the vaccines and their, the patents, which is don't give the patents to other companies. Like Pfizer's a $180 billion company. Let them build more they know how to build these facilities. let them build these facilities in order to create more vaccine they're the only ones who can let go do it up to scale as fast as possible with the safety concerns that we're considering this whole other method is crazy but as with the semiconductors why is it going to be a three-year lag uh before they can make more you know if there's a shortage i i i'm this is where i'm missing a beat somewhere well the, the another analogy that has a pretty prominent place in the American economy is with oil rigs is we had about 700 rigs and they brought it down to below 200 because of the supply demand conditions of COVID. And now to get the rigs back up as demand is firing up again, um, they're back to about 300 now. So we're still less than 50% of where we were. But I think there is this idea that oil rigs work like a light switch and, and it isn't so simple. And there's a lot of complexity that goes into getting a rig back online. The semiconductor thing is rel relatively new. We've gone through the rig um, lags in the in the past. My my own belief is that those issues get solved by the problem that created them. There is an incredible economic incentive right now for Intel to go put $20 billion into a couple of new manufacturing plants in Arizona and New Mexico to make other people's semiconductor chips. That it's not gonna be the IP of Intel's revenue model. It's gonna be just purely the manufacturing component. So you will get a lot of players. And in this case, they will outperform expectations. It will not be three years. But a lot of what Noah talked about in the 4% CPI move before was in, in autos. I think the number would have gone to 2.8% if it were ex-auto, and that's entirely related to the semiconductor issue. And so, it, um, as Herb Stein said, if something can't continue, it won't. This can't continue. But it's, it's an embarrassment 
that it was allowed to happen to begin with. And I think it speaks to deficiencies in the way America's supply chain has been constructed. Okay. I, I, have a, oh, oh. I have a I have a question for David about this actually because there's a there's a political issue here that we see right now it's a bit on the margins unless you're in the area where the advocacy is very high particular environmental advocacy but do you see the Biden administration strikes me as being very amenable to using this moment of recovery as a way to inject ideological policy making into industries that I, I'm glad you brought up oil rigs that might um, economically benefit from being left alone to, to respond to new demand and, and resurgent demand, but in fact are gonna end up being hobbled down the line by kind of political decision-making about policies that, that might actively harm us economically, but would satisfy an ideological wing of the party. What do you think about that? Well, I, I definitely think there's gonna be some of that with the bark. The question is how much of there, uh, that there will be with the bite. And, and this was a, a really consistent feature of the Obama administration was jawboning things that they were actually not doing anything to hurt behind the scenes. And the fracking industry is the greatest example. There was really almost no way they could have been friendlier to fracking in the Obama administration <laughs> other than allow permits on federal land, which was a bridge too far. But the truth is that um, the, even with the Biden administration so far, Chevron and Exxon are both up about 60-70% in stock price since Biden was elected. And for the very reason that they know whatever he does regulatory-wise is likely to hurt small players and not big players. Um, the most Trumpian thing Biden could do is to use this moment to celebrate onshoring a domestic production. And, and provide big tax breaks, tax incentives to companies. They can't go move a lot of the production to Vietnam or Mexico because the IP is not there to do it. It would take too long. Where they can do it in, is in the US. It still wouldn't be smooth and easy, but for whatever reason, the, the Biden administration doesn't seem to see a populist opportunity here, which I think there is one politically. But I, I believe thus far, it's been really intellectually schizophrenic in terms of how the Biden administration has portrayed some of these things. So you definitely are right. You get these moments where it looks like they're portraying some sort of social agenda or what have you. And yet when it comes down to the actual policy teeth of it, um, even in the regulatory side, I haven't seen a lot of it yet that has actually um, been substantive. I, I do think that one of the strangest lines I've heard thus far was his line yesterday that John referenced it wasn't about bank lending, though. It was he said black entrepreneurs can't find accountants and attorneys, and that is would be news to every African American entrepreneur I've ever met. It's a, it's a shockingly sort of infantilizing um, take on on uh, adult African Americans. It's astounding. But I, I actually I, I have a, a another question, David, related to something you said. You, you mentioned that um, we, we can't expect any sort of explosive boom um, in the in the near future. Um, and I'm just wondering about, and the, the sort of, the question itself, there's a kind of desperation, I think, baked into it, but nevertheless, what about the possibility of a completely sort of unforeseen technology um, that isn't about building on, I mean, building on to some extent, but isn't about extending, you know, the, the superconductors or, or something else, you know, sort of something that just sort of swoops in from left field um, as, as things have in the past that um, uh, portends a, a, a something resembling a boom. 
Well, those things that could create a boom, meaning uh, uh, unleashing of economic productivity, are also deflationary. And so uh, fracking led to a significant increase of supply of oil and natural gas, and natural gas prices went from $15 to $2. And um, anything related to productivity enhancement in the technology sphere is disinflationary, which is why uh, VCR used to cost $800 and now um, you know, we're, we're, we understand what tech has done. There are really significant disinflationary um, mo uh, uh, forces from some things that enhance productivity. What creates inflation out of productivity is if the um, velocity of money were to turn up. And that's the problem right now is that there is no precedent in human history for velocity going higher when debt is growing. You would need the budget deficit to be lower than the rate of nominal GDP growth. This is, this is basically algebraic. And I find that incomprehensible at this point that there is any politician. Um, by the way, I shouldn't say that because it's really not fair to either Democrats or Republicans. That I don't think there are any American people that have the will for there to be nominal GDP growth in excess of budget deficits, of the rate of budget deficit growth. And that is what compresses velocity, which keeps deflation low. Now, demographics, the whole overall demography story has weighed on deflation. Certainly globalization did, certainly technology did. And some of those forces can move in different directions. And the US-Japan story is not gonna be identical. It's gonna rhyme, but not repeat. But I do believe that the overall key economic principle that I'm talking about, which is that excessive indebtedness weighs on future growth, meaning for those who define growth and wealth the way that I do and I presume you do, that we will not have the goods and services produced in the economy to soak up um, that excess, that, that money supply, that there will not be that, um, that, that realm that would then re uh, enable turnover of money and velocity that creates inflation. Okay, I just wanna shift topics just, just to complete this uh, uh, session because um, I have a little thing I wanna share and I want sort of Abe to, Abe to respond uh, to it. There's a, uh, uh, in, in the first big in-person debate uh, in the New York mayoral race. New York, New York mayor always takes place two weeks from three weeks uh, from yesterday, uh, the primary. Uh, it's a complicated primary. It's ranked choice voting, which means we, because of the complication, you, you pick five people in order. Uh, and at, at the point at which somebody gets to 50% in this round robin counting will become the nominee and the Democratic nominee will then essentially in November become the, the, the next mayor of New York City. Um, here's, why, here's what's of interest. So uh, there are uh, three leading candidates and then there are a bunch of other candidates and the three leading candidates, uh, Yang, Eric, Andrew Yang, Eric Adams and Nicole Garcia, uh, uh, Catherine Garcia, excuse me. Uh, Yang and Adams are sort of running as moderates. Garcia's running as a can do, you know, knows how to do things politician. And then there's a bunch of very far left candidates, otherwise, where uh, some comic things are happening. Uh, Emerson did a poll uh, of voters in New York City last week, and it has an incredibly interesting statistic that people haven't quite made the measure of. Uh, asking people what the most important issue is in facing New York City. 
Uh, 20% said um, uh, public safety, meaning crime. Uh, 16 or 15% said housing and 12% said homelessness. And then the rest is divided, you know, 10,000 10, different ways. To my mind, if you actually look at those three categories, they're all species of the same condition. Arguably, you can take housing out, but I'll, I'll, homelessness is a public safety issue. It is not a humanitarian issue. People who say that homelessness is the worst problem facing the city are not saying so because what they're feeling is sorrow because there are people lying on the streets. They're saying so because they feel unsafe and menaced and harassed by people on the streets. And crime is crime. You add those together, you get 31%. I would argue that housing, when people say that they're concerned about housing, generally speaking, they can be concerned about pricing of housing and where they can't get apartments and all of that. For a lot of those people, housing is a public safety issue, particularly people who live in housing projects of whom there are hundreds of thousands in the city who are living in places that are increasingly unsafe. So I think you could argue that somewhere between 30 and 40% of New Yorkers are saying that crime and public safety is their number one issue. Um, I, I, I think that's entirely true. Um, I think, you know, the interesting thing about it is, though, because you have those different categories, depending on uh, what you want to say, you can talk about it as a law and order issue or as a sort of mental health issue, which which it is. Um, but but those going in one direction or the other um, sort of gives a very different gloss on the on the on the topic and orients you in a very different place. So the question is, um, how many New Yorkers are sort of fed up with the sense of uh, looming menace on sort of every block in Midtown, which is, which is I think, a reality now? Um, or how many of them are sort of um, looking at uh, the homeless wandering around, um, not foremost as a potential threat, but as um, evidence of the failure of a caretaking state? I mean, I, I, would, I would love to think in some ways that people you know, have the capacity in some sense to sort of divide all this up and think about it in complicated ways. I think what, what these numbers indicate is that the, is that the 20, uh, this is not that interesting to people outside New York City, but it should be because that's, I'm making a more general case. The livability of American cities is now becoming a political issue exactly the way it was in the 1970s. This poll and this, these data and the fact that Yang and Adams, Yang who was running as the moderate in the race and Adams who was running kind of falsely by the way as a, as a tough former cop because he was a cop, was an anti-cop when he was a cop. <laughs> that was his, he was a cop who hated the police department. That, that's what he did in the 1990s. Nonetheless, he's like walking around like a cop the way John Kerry walked around like he was the greatest soldier uh, in the world when he was somebody who had thrown his medals away, right? Um, uh, uh, this is a bulletin to the woke left. Um, they are losing, they're, they're losing the battle for the hearts and souls of, of, of the blue states uh, by the results of the policies that they are putting in place, I believe. I mean, I, it's going to be interesting to see how these 
uh, politicians and would-be politicians act uh, act upon this data, too many of the candidates are already too invested, like the Democrats in 2019 and 2020, in their uh, woke far-left narratives to shift gears. Um, the, well, the, uh, yeah. Just so the, something I've seen that uh, a lot of the sort of um, pro um, uh, 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 defund people um, be, have caught wind of the public sentiment, John, that you're describing in cities now. And they're out there very vigorously trying to make the case that the rise in crime doesn't really have anything to do with anti-police sentiment, with the defund movement. You see, it's just a combination of everyone went crazy from the pandemic um, and uh, um, sort of a, a, a you know a, a, a general kind of like you know crazy year that no one can can sort of wrap their hands around and control. And that if you look at the statistics, you'll see that violent crime rose in places where there was no change in policing, as well as in places where there was. So you can't pinpoint it to that. Good luck. I mean, I, I, I tend to weigh in. I tend to be on your side. I think most people in cities view this as a general as a real problem with law enforcement. I mean, I think in the end, one has to hope that this is the case, because if it's not, then everything that we understand about what people expect from government is now thrown out the window and skewed beyond belief. Um, if, if, the, if the purpose of local government is not first and foremost to make sure that you don't feel like you can't let your kids out of the apartment because they're either gonna get shot by a stray bullet or, or that your grandmother is gonna walk down the street and get punched in the face by, um, by a homeless criminal, um, if that is not what government is for, and government is actually literally there to sort of, you know, redistribute income or something like that, then what we know about what self-governance is about is has really undergone the kind of change that the left really wants to be the case. I don't believe that is true, but uh, we'll see what we'll see what the New York City election tells us about that. So, with that, David Bonson, thank you so much. Now you know why he is the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services industry. And for Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Pop Keep the candle burning.